Good morning. Uh, this morning's reading you can follow on the uh, front or in your Bible. So Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way <clears throat> toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Thanks, uh, Richard, uh, for reading for us uh, this morning. Uh, I'm going to be uh, floating around the Bible a little bit this morning, uh, the last of our kind of topical series before we get on to uh, the Gospel of John next week. And uh, if you'd like to follow uh, what, uh, the outline uh, for this morning, uh, you can see it there in your notice sheets. Uh, I think uh, there is uh, the last point, you can probably cross that off. I don't think we're quite going to get there. Um, but that's right. Uh, Back in the 1960s uh, time, no doubt some of you remember well, uh, 
back in the 1960s, some uh, missionaries from Canada uh, called Don and Carol Richardson, uh, great name, but they're not related, in case you're wondering. Uh, they, these missionaries, they went to work amongst some people, some tribal people in what is today West Papua. And as they learnt the language and uh, the culture that they were living amongst and tried to share the gospel, uh, they actually found there was a real challenge to communicate. It wasn't just about the language barrier, but some of the ideas that they wanted to communicate about Jesus just didn't compute. When they shared the story of Jesus and his death on the cross and his crucifixion, uh, the people there heard the story and they thought that Judas was the hero of the story. Judas, the one who had betrayed Jesus, uh, he seemed to them to be the smarter and more insightful one, whereas Jesus was weak and foolish because he got trapped by his friend. The whole story just did not make sense to them. But then the Richardsons discovered that the particular tribe they were working with had this concept called a peace child. Uh, it was a ceremony where if you wanted to make peace with your enemy, uh, you'd actually uh, hand over one of your children as a sign of goodwill. I can see it happening in the picture there. And this peace child became an analogy that the Richardsons uh, could use as they explained the gospel uh, to do that in a way that actually made sense to the people that they were talking to. Uh, using the peace child, the people could understand and resonate with the idea that actually God's son uh, would come and would make peace between God and people. Now, as the Richardsons did this, uh, used this analogy that the people understood to explain the gospel, what they're doing is what is uh, technically called contextualization. Contextualization is the process of taking the unchanging message of the gospel and finding relevant and meaningful ways to communicate it in the particular culture you are living in. Uh, Press Minister and uh, uh, Apologist Tim Keller, he's done a lot of thinking and writing about this uh, issue, and uh, this is his definition of contextualization. Sound contextualization means translating and adapting the communication and ministry of the gospel to a particular culture without compromising the essence and particulars of the gospel itself. You need to note carefully contextualization is not changing the gospel, it's changing the way you communicate the gospel. It's not compromising the essence of the gospel or even the particulars of the gospel. It's seeking to to communicate and do ministry in a way that is meaningful. Now, some people are a little bit suspicious of contextualization. Uh, To some people, it sounds a lot like compromising the gospel. And it's true, sometimes people in their attempt to contextualise do compromise the truth and rather than working hard at uh, communicating the, go- the whole gospel, even the unpopular bits, uh, people just kind of leave out the unpopular bits and call that uh, contextualization. Uh, perhaps something like God's judgment. We know that that's not very popular in our community and so we might just leave out that part of the gospel. But that's not good contextualization. Contextualization is speaking and living in a way that expresses God's Word most clearly in the culture you belong to and it's even the most unpopular uh, bits, even the offensive parts are understood most 
clearly. In reality, if you fail to contextualize, uh, you could be like the Richardson and say, well, I'm just going to share the gospel. We don't, don't worry about the peace child. We're just going to keep talking about Jesus and Judas. Uh, you're actually not communicating the truth, are you? And actually, when we turn to the New Testament, we see that the apostles always contextualized their message to, and their way of life so that what they said was meaningful in the context in which they lived. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9 and verse 20. He says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law but under, am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means... I might save some. Paul never changed his message. You can see the little bits in brackets there. He's saying, you know, it's not that I, I have to follow the law. It's not that I have no law of Jesus that binds my conscience. But in every other possible way, he says, I became uh, like the people that I was ministering to so that people could hear and un understand the gospel as clearly as possible. And you see Paul putting this into practice uh, back in the book of Acts and uh, Lydia explained that so well for us in uh, the kids' time. When Paul preaches in synagogues to Jewish people, uh, people whose beliefs are totally centered around the Old Testament, who know all God's plans and his promises for a Messiah and King to come, Paul explains the gospel with that background in mind. Uh, you can see an example of Paul's preaching uh, to people from a Jewish background in a synagogue in Acts chapter 13. Uh, here's a little snippet from one of his messages. He says, We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I become your father. See what Paul's doing there. People know the promises of the Old Testament. So that's where Paul takes them. That's how he, what he uses to explain who Jesus is. And the whole speech, the whole sermon uh, is similar to that. But in Acts chapter 17, which Richard read for us, when Paul is preaching to a totally different group of people, a group of Gentiles, Greek people in the Areopagus in Athens, his approach is so different. There's actually not one mention of the Old Testament. There's no quotes because the people don't know anything about the Scriptures. Instead, Paul introduces them to God as their creator. Verse 22, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Paul starts with what they believe, and then he gets the gospel. Now, if you actually look at where Paul ends up in both of these messages, they both get to a very similar spot. He explains that Jesus is God's risen King, and that everybody needs to turn and follow Him. Uh, that's the destination, but the way he gets there is different because he contextualizes his message to the people that he is talking to. And this is actually the approach to ministry that we're really committed to uh, here at Cairns Presbyterian Church. 
as we seek to hear and live and share God's uh, unchanging word, we want to do that in a way that is contextualized to the culture that we live in. We want to work hard at understanding our culture so that we can do our best to communicate and apply the gospel in a way that is faithful but meaningful uh, to our situation, that is faithful and meaningful in our cultural moment today, which is, of course, different from many other cultural times that the gospel has been shared. And so I thought, having thought about this issue of contextualization, I want to, in the second half of our message, share three features of our culture. Well, actually, I'm going to share two because uh, don't think we've got time for the third one. I'm going to share two features of our culture that we need to be aware of uh, and that should inform the way that we seek to faithfully live and share the gospel. And the first thing I think that uh, stands out in our culture is that uh, we live in a post-Christian uh, culture. We are a culture that is interestingly uh, highly influenced and, uh, and kind of has a, a foundation in the church and Christianity. Uh, you know, many of our uh, stories and, and books uh, have quotes from the Bible and allusions to the Bible. Uh, in some ways, uh, many of our values originally come from Christianity and the Bible. But as a culture, we very much no longer see Christianity as the solution. In fact, far from being the solution, uh, our culture really now sees Christianity as part of the problem, uh, something that needs to be actively overcome and left behind. Now, there's still some of the values of the Bible in our culture, aren't there? People love things like justice and love and the value of human life. Uh, those things are values in our culture, but actually the belief is that in order to find those things, to really express those things as a culture, we need to deconstruct uh, the old uh, Christian beliefs, we need to deconstruct the institutions of the past and leave them behind. Post-Christianity is kind of tough if you're still wanting to be a Christian. Because it means that people, it's not just that people don't know about Christianity, it's not just that people don't understand Christianity, but as a culture, we're putting a lot of effort into deconstructing Christianity and leaving it behind. Uh, and, and that's tough, isn't it? And when you don't want to leave it behind. Being in a post-Christian culture also means they're in a situation where values and priorities that people promote sound familiar, but you still constantly feel this disconnect uh, that they're not quite uh, the same as what you believe. I mean, have a look at a little book this week called The Secular Creed, and uh, Christian apologist Rebecca McLaughlin uh, talks about a sign that she's seen in front yards in a neighbourhood in America, uh, something like this, except that uh, they had just slightly different words on it, uh, but here's the, the sign. Uh, in this house, uh, we believe black lives matter, uh, love is love, women's rights are human rights, we're all immigrants, diversity makes us stronger. I think at face value, these could be Christian beliefs. I mean, Christians 100% agree that black lives matter. Uh, all lives are made in the image of God and are loved and valued by Him. Of course, black lives matter. Uh, love is love. Well, we might want to say God is love, but we follow the, the Saviour whose uh, primary command was love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, he said that is the most important command, uh, as well as loving God 
uh, with all your heart and mind and soul. It's a fundamental uh, attitude that humans, that God wants humans to have. Women's rights are human's rights? Uh, of course, we believe that. Women are made in the God's image along with men. Uh, any mistreating of women or disrespecting women is a result of the fall uh, and is not what God wants. Uh, we're all immigrants. Uh, it's really a theological statement, but the Bible is full of instructions to love the alien, uh, to care for strangers in your midst. And diversity makes us stronger. Well, again, you know, we might like to tweak a little bit, maybe diversity in Christ uh, makes us stronger. But we saw last week, didn't we, the importance of diversity, that God's plan is for a diverse uh, kingdom, that people from all nations and all languages and all tribes are going to be united through faith in Christ. A diversity is something that we do value as a church. So faith value, we could look at this sign and go, that's fantastic. Uh, we, we agree. But if you've ever seen these slogans actually being used, uh, you'll know that often they can be used, or some of them um, are used, to actually undermine some of the things that the Bible teaches. Uh, love is love. It's actually not normally used just as a general statement that human beings should love their neighbours. It's a very specific slogan supporting homosexual love as a good and valid and celebrated thing. Uh, women's rights are human rights. Perhaps it's often used, uh, particularly in the abortion debate, to say that actually abortion is a human right. The idea that diversity makes us stronger probably, as normally used, would reject any thought that uh, we should be united around Christ and that actually he should be the centre and focus of any diversity. So it's tricky, isn't it? Because in a, in a post-Christian culture, you have these uh, values that have been taken from the Bible and that uh, we want to support. We don't want to deny those things because, in a sense, then we're denying the gospel, but they're cut loose from the anchor of Jesus and His Word, and so they import a whole lot of things that we don't agree with. I think serving Jesus in this culture, it's kind of complicated, isn't it? It's tempting to go to extremes, to uh, either go, well, you know, we're going to reject all those sentiments on the sign outright because we know that they're political and uh, sometimes they're applied in unbiblical ways. On the other hand, we might go, well, no, they're all biblical statements. We should uh, accept them without question. But when we do that, perhaps we import a whole lot of unbiblical ideas at the same time. But we want to contextualise. We don't really want to do either of those extremes, do we? We want to understand uh, what people believe. We want to see the areas of agreement uh, between us and our culture. We want to see the things that our culture values. But we want to show where our culture goes wrong. We want to be courageous uh, where we don't think our culture is right, but we want to show how perhaps uh, the Bible provides the only firm foundation for these values uh, and how Jesus actually gives us the right boundaries uh, for these values. And so, uh, as we live in a post-Christian culture, uh, it is, a, uh, it is a, um, I guess, a challenging time to be a, a Christian, but it's a time when we need more than ever uh, to be uh, contextualising our faith, to understand uh, the things that our culture values and seeking to show people uh, how Jesus is really the fulfilment of those things. I think if you want an example of how to do that, uh, 
Secular Creed, it's called by Rebecca McLaughlin, is a great example. Uh, she goes through a few of those things, uh, like the ones on the sign, and just shows how uh, the Christian faith uh, can challenge, um, but also fulfill uh, some of those values that, that people have. So that's being a post-Christian culture. Uh, the second uh, thing that I want to talk about, is, that is a real feature of our cultural moment that we live in, is what philosophers and uh, I guess cultural observers call expressive individualism. Uh, expressive individualism is a label for the idea that if you're going to achieve fulfillment and freedom and happiness, you need to discover your own unique personal identity and that when you've discovered your unique personal identity, you need to express that fully and openly and have everybody around you affirm it. Uh, follow your passion, uh, chart your own course, march to the beat of your own drummer, follow your dreams and find yourself. This is the litany of expressive individualism. That's a quote from David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times newspaper. Thing is, that's fundamentally not what God's Word teaches us, is it? God's Word teaches us that Human beings, while we're created in the image of God, uh, we've fallen. Uh, our natural selves are warped, are messed up by sin. God's Word teaches us that we need not to follow ourselves, but Christ. We need to uh, not uh, chart our own course, but give up our own course and take up our cross and follow Christ's course. We need to learn not to march to the beat of our own drum, but march to the beat of of Christ's drum. And this, of course, should make us think differently about a whole lot of things from the culture around us. Our jobs, our marriages, our friendships, our hobbies, all kinds of things. We're going to think differently if we're not marching to the beat of our own drum, following our own passions, but seeking to know what Christ's passion is and following Him. But I think the most public clash, perhaps the one that we feel uh, between expressive individualism and the Christian faith is in the area of sexual and gender identity. Expressive individualism says you need to work out your sexuality or your gender for yourself, you need to look into your heart and discover who you really are, but the Bible calls us to look to God's design for uh, sex and gender and accept what he has done. The Bible says God created us as men and women with male and female bodies to be joined together as male and females in marriage. His intention is for us to uh, live even in a fallen world as much in sync as we can uh, with uh, our created bodies and uh, to uh, honour the special male-female marriage relationship as unique and as the only place for sexual activity. But this biblical call to limit self-expression, to restrain our desires, that that is fiercely uh, rejected by many in our culture. It's not just seen as strange or wrong or old-fashioned, uh, it's seen as dangerous and damaging. And it's tough to keep trusting and living God's word when our culture is so fiercely opposed. 
even if we understand that it's not our job uh, to tell people who aren't Christians how to live and we just want to share the gospel with them, with expressive individualism, tolerance and respect and loving actions are often not enough. It's a failure to celebrate someone's chosen identity that is considered hateful. And any failure to celebrate somebody uh, can threaten friendships, can threaten family relationships, can threaten jobs, can threaten careers. So how can we respond uh, faithfully when the pressure is on? I think firstly, uh, we want to work really hard to be righteous and loving people in every other area of our lives. We want to do our best. If we know we're going to be criticised in this one area and that's unavoidable, we want to do our best to make sure that if we are being criticised for our views on sexuality, well, everything else in our lives actually testifies to uh, God's love, testifies that we are not the hypocritical and hateful and uncaring people that we might be painted as. Uh, author Stephen McAlpine, uh, he puts it this way, he's got a great little book called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. Uh, again, definitely recommended reading. Uh, but he writes, if after refusing to be swayed on matters of sexual ethics, you are scorned, disciplined, demoted, or even let go from your job, it must be in spite of the way you live, not because of it. We must cultivate exemplary, grace-filled and generous lives that challenge any allegation that our beliefs lead us to be mean-spirited, hostile and dangerous. Contextualising in our culture means that we need to work extra hard at being Christ-like. We know that perhaps some of our ideas will seem hateful and hurtful to people, but we want to do everything else in our power uh, to make sure that we don't uh, encourage uh, that view Respond to a hostile culture and a hostile people by living godly, Christ-like loves of genuine love and humility for your neighbours. Secondly, as we deal with a hostile culture around us, we want to be part of a supportive church family. If our culture is so actively preaching expressive individualism, we need a community around us that preaches that we don't belong to ourselves, that we belong to Christ, that living for him uh, is the way uh, is the way we need a community where we have real and gracious relationships with one another so that we can share our struggles that we can help one another to keep serving the lord and think about those tricky situations about uh, where we can uh, agree with people and where we have to draw the line and disagree where we can face external pressures from our cultures uh, and of course where we can help one another to face our own internal uh, struggles with wayward desires and disordered desires in our life because, uh, of course, Christians uh, struggle with uh, different uh, temptations and uh, feelings about their, their sexual and gender identities and we want to encourage one another uh, in that. We need a community that is a family in reality, uh, not just in theory, a community that is there to embrace people like a real family, uh, people who don't just fit easily into, you know, the kind of married with 2.1 kid mould uh, that we show love and support uh, to a whole range of people as they seek to live for Christ. And so uh, these are two uh, um, features of our culture 
uh, in which we seek to live and share God's word. The fact that we're in a post-Christian culture that is a bit confusing and the fact that we are in an expressive, individualistic culture that can be uh, very hostile. Can be, it can feel daunting uh, to be faithful in our culture, uh, but it's good to remember, isn't it? Uh, we're not alone in facing a hostile culture. That has been the case for Christians around the world and throughout history. Uh, let's work hard at being a church family that holds fast to the truth, but also exemplifies uh, the love and humility of Christ, that we engage lovingly and courageously uh, with those around us, that we live and hear and share God's word faithfully in the context which God has placed us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we uh, thank you for the good news of the gospel and we thank you that it has uh, great truth and meaning and relevance to every single uh, culture that there's ever been and every single culture in the world. We pray that you would help us in our particular cultural moment uh, to have uh, the strength and power of your spirit uh, to be both uh, bold in uh, living for you and sharing you, uh, but also wise in, uh, in loving you and uh, speaking in a way which is properly understood by those around us. Uh, watch over us, uh, make us a, a supportive and encouraging family of your people where we find uh, the, the strength uh, to continue to live for you in our wider world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.